Welcome to another edition of UCBS on Times Live. My guest today is Bonang Mohale, well-known South African business leader. He's also an author and a commentator. He, of course, has written many books and articles in South African space, intervening in conversations around big questions of the day. I, in particular, loved Lift As You Rise, which was a bestseller and rightly so. He is also the Chancellor of the University of the Free State and holds many positions as a teacher as well as a chairperson, amongst others, of the BitVest group. But of course, many of you will probably know him in terms of a byline, a strapline on TV when he's being interviewed as President of Business Unity South Africa. Now, in the middle of December, he wrote a very provocative piece in Daily Maverick, and it was headlined, The ANC Cannot Fix Itself, South Africa's Last Hope is Business. I love the piece. I want to pressure test its argumentation. And we agreed that it's probably good to wait for the Christmas lull to be over, the ANC's conference to be sort of over. It didn't quite get there until this weekend. And then we'll return to these issues which are enduring. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Bonang, good morning to you and thanks so much for coming on this podcast platform. Thank you for having me, CBS, my dear brother. The ANC cannot fix itself is a proposition many probably would share, not the ANC itself. But let's go through the motions of rehearsing the analysis. Why do you believe it cannot fix itself? The reason has been demonstrated beyond any shadow of doubt by this 55th ANC conference, which was scheduled to be finished in five days. Mm. Now, I've run many companies we go on strategic planning for two, three days maximum. Mm. Five days is a bit stretching it. To use the whole five days and be 24 hours late and not finish in five days and then have to reschedule for another two mm. days, you are sending a strategic conversation to yourself, not to anybody mm. else, to say, if you can't get your business done in five days, plus two days, now we must promote you to run the whole country. Mm. You don't really inspire confidence, do you? I think that's fair enough. And if one then looks at the point of the ANC's elective conference, it's twofold. One is literally to elect new leadership. And the second is to adopt resolutions, which it hopes will then feed into the policy cycle of the state. I want your view on both of those. Let's start with the leadership. It now has a top seven 
It also has a sort of, but not really new composition of additional members on the NEC. What do you make of the names that have emerged? Let's start with just those two concepts. You know, leadership is about doing the right things, not doing things right. The most critical part of that conference, 80% of the energy must be on policymaking because mm. that's what drives the agenda. It sets the tone for government. It informs the four no more than five priorities in a sea of a thousand and one issues we have to tackle, a majority of whom have actually conflicting priorities. Mm. Now you spend 90% of your time on electing people. You know, we learn in strategy that structure follows strategy. Mm. Now here, the, the actual board pack of the ANC is, bl- is brown envelopes. People mm. don't have to read anything. They just have to figure out who's paid me the most money and then I'll vote for that person. After that, they are then beholden to the people who have paid them to make sure that they pay them back in terms of state contract, general, lajas, but also the feeding at the trough. So we have these things the way the wrong way round. But also, let's look at it differently. If the ANC can't pay its own staff at Luturi House, mm. now we want to promote them to run 60.1 million South Africans and administer social grants for 17 million people, plus the 10.5 million that we've just added on mm. the 350 relief of distress grants. Yes. That's 28 million people. No wonder in the 21st century, they don't even have systems and processes to figure out who's a member, who's paid, who's in good standing, therefore who needs to be accredited. Accreditation should not take two days in an environment where we are trying to be globally competitive, you see this. And you know, it's very difficult to play devil's advocate to defend the ANC. The, the most I would do if I was a spokesperson is I might say something along the following lines sheepishly and then tell me how you would respond. That firstly, there is now a little bit of a renewal within the NEC. There is some younger energies that are in there. Some of the pensioners are gone, including people like Blade, Pravin. Sure, some of them didn't want to be re-elected. Some simply didn't make it back, including some members of cabinet who are not in the NEC. And in a reshuffle, you probably would have to get rid of them. And some will now be permanently to Tuliaus, who have arguably been, yes, not always been top performers, like Fakile Mbalula. And so there's an opportunity here for renewal of who gets seconded into the state. Also, in a second term, the president is unencumbered by the burden of being re-elected for a third term. So now he's going to have the space to be more decisive in the state and to think about his legacy in the state as ANC leader seconded to the state, not having to worry about will I get re-elected at NASRAC for a third term? In that context, one should be hopeful about the ANC. What say you? I would say in life you don't announce moves, you confirm arrivals. Mm. Therefore, 
when the president was trusted with the first term, he found probably 30 thieves on his cabinet. Mm. He disappoints 10 and he leaves 20. These are the people every minute they are plotting to kill him. He leaves them. Mm. Now we are supposed to say he's actually done very little in the first five years. We must be hopeful that he's going to do more in the next five years. Mm. I think it's a red herring. We need to judge leaders by what they have achieved, not by the plans they've put in place. It is common cause that the ANC comes up with human rights and socially justice-oriented resolutions. The failure is on implementation, on the doing. It was General George Patton who reminds us that great wars are won by good execution, not great plans, because good execution will save even a mediocre plan. Everybody agrees now that 29 years into democracy, our Achilles heel is the execution. Mm. The NDP 2030 said 11 things wrong, nine things that needs to be done. We had 30 years to do this in. Now we are left with probably six. Every expert tells you that we don't have a snowball's chance in hell to achieve those eight things, the nine things that we set for ourselves. So what is really keeping us awake at night that the ANC should be focused on? If I was to say not a thousand and one things, let me just choose four, my dear brother, and in order of priority. Mm. The first one I would say it's this notion of rooting out and defeating state capture. Because it doesn't matter what you do. If you steal 1.5 trillion in five years, everything else is just crumb. The second thing is youth unemployment. Mm. When you have 75% young people of military age sitting at home twinkling their thumbs with nothing to do, let me submit that not only are you asking for trouble, but you are actively inviting it. The third, for me, is this notion of a stable, reliable, and predictable energy supply, not our obsession with ESCOM. So we we should take it from whence it comes. So in 15 years, since the first rolling blackout in February of 2008, we have not succeeded in defeating um, the rolling blackouts. 15 years. Mm. Most countries address most of their ills, oppression, war, genocide, in 20 years. And Mm. we have not been able to do that. The last one, for me, my brother, will be, I think, this notion of the stubbornly high levels of unemployment, which is 46%. So, 55% 55% of South Africans, 60.1 million South Africans, are living below the poverty day to black. So the stubbornly mm. high levels of unemployment, that then lead to increasing levels of poverty and increasing levels of inequality. And I submit that it is relative inequality that leads to social strife. If we don't address those four at least, I think the events of the 19th of July, 2021, are going to happen again and again and again of a failed insurrection 
of rampant looting, where sometimes even the poor becomes thieves out of necessity. Eusebius? I couldn't agree with you more. And it's an obvious inference from there that your democracy per se is then under threat, that all of the indices and the data that you have just dumped and then explained directly threaten the foundations of the constitutional framework that we are so theoretically proud of, but that isn't necessarily animated if you don't have good and effective governance in place. I like the headline of your piece in the Daily Maverick that was put on it. The ANC cannot fix itself. South Africa's last hope is business. Of course, it invites you to read it because it's muscular and assertive, but sometimes it can be slightly reductive. The essence of the piece is about business. And there, I think you've got some work to do to sustain your case that business is the last hope, even though your argument is more subtle than the headline necessarily suggests, because headlines are there to attract eyeballs. But before we get to the essence of where the business can step in, where there are lacunae left by the ANC, I just want us to finish the analysis of the state of the state and the state of the ANC with one central question in relation to it, Bonang, and it's this. When we say the ANC cannot fix itself. We should give up on the ANC. In South Africa, the ANC is a massive social movement. It is still the biggest political party. It will be around for a while. The only question is, will it be around in the 50s, in the 40s, or the 60s, which I don't think will ever happen again in electoral terms. And when we say give up on the ANC, it's very difficult to not read that as giving up on the state because the ANC and the state are fused in real politic. But it's not business or civil society organizations, but the state that has a monopoly, as we know by design, on tax collection, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force, a monopoly on the disbursement of the taxes that are collected, and most critically in relation to these policy questions, a monopoly on formulating and implementing both general laws and specific policies. In that context, is it not irresponsible for any Democrat to give up on the state? In fact, in your answer and assertion, there also lies the solution. You see, it is usually futile to try to talk facts and analysis to people who are enjoying a sense of moral superiority in their ignorance. This ANC-led mm. government has demonstrated beyond any shadow of doubt that they conflate the party and the state. The former president said, if I'm given a choice, I'll put the ANC before the state. Of course, that's not right, because he is repudiating the terms and conditions of his own contract. In fact, you see it yeah. in the action. This conference, as we speak, is in a military base, which is government but we are talking about the party. Mm -hmm. But you see, they don't even know the difference between a national broadcaster and a state broadcaster. That's mm. why people feel entitled to use the government aeroplane of the army to take their friends and give them a lift to Zimbabwe. That's why a minister mm. of defense feels absolutely entitled that when my son-in-law is in a spot of border, I can take the state resources, go and fetch and extradite them from their country of birth and come and give them a temporary sejourner status in South Africa. That's where our problem is. I think mm. what we needed mm. to do was to say 
like in the United States of America, it's not a perfect democracy, that there must be civil servants that are professional, irrespective of the party that is this. We talk about the Republicans and Democrats, the people who are the machinery, who come at eight to five, who make sure that service delivery is delivered, they don't have to be the cadres deployed by the ANC. In fact, I'm on record as saying, if the ANC was giving us their best cadres, would leave them alone. But unfortunately, they're giving us mm-hmm. absolutely their worst. Not only people who don't know the difference between income and cash, but also not only the people whose only claim to fame is how much I can steal, loot, and probably distribute to people who came to this country with absolutely nothing, the Guptas. You know, history tells us that they came with less than 1.5 million rent. But we were giving them on average 20 billion South African rents a year every year in the not-wasted years. We made them probably among the top five richest families in India, all of it with the wealth of South Africa. And yet we have a Mm. policy that says we must create black industrialists. I want you and I to look around and say how many of these black industrialists have been created by the ANC, not even by capital itself. Let me end by saying, even though I make an argument that says our only hope is business, it's because theoretically only business can spell project management, how to deliver mega projects on budget, on time and in full. In fact, business has demonstrated that when they put their mind to it, there is nothing they can achieve. But also let's say, and be quick to say, that business itself needs a serious intervention because we can't speak of social justice when business is seen to be at the apex of injustice. What is needed? But that's exactly what I want to get to, though, Bonang, because we can agree that while we can tinker with little bits of the constitutional infrastructure we adopted in 96 as the final version of the constitution and the statecraft that is an ongoing process that unfolds thereafter, that fundamentally we have a leadership and people problem within the state, not fundamentally a design problem. Even if undergraduates can debate state-centric approaches to growing the economy versus market fundamentalism. In reality, those are false dichotomies. Fundamentally, there's a political leadership problem within the South African state rather than a state craft problem. The rest is detail. But it's one thing to say that as part of your diagnostic report on the state of society. It is an entirely different proposition to have faith in big business per se. You will be really really having a long and difficult time finding examples of major corruption cases, state capture projects worse than garden variety corruption, inflation of invoicing, etc., where you don't see someone in the state being in cahoots with someone in the private sector. For every ANC cater that has been shamed at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry. There is a corporate citizen and employees within corporates that were in cahoots with them, knowing that they are corruptible and that they were doing a tango dance stealing from SA Inc. So 
surely there is another podcast to be done where the beginning of that podcast conversation in parallel with this one is a 20-minute lament of big business. So when you say, yeah, you know, business needs an intervention, there's a lot of heavy lifting that the phrase business needs an intervention is doing in your qualification that business can help us. The truth is that business in South Africa is at the center of the state capture project. You know, Eusebius, I couldn't possibly agree with you more. One, because business benefited from apartheid wages when black people and women were paid less than men Mm. for work of equal value. Business itself was a beneficiary when it was silent and it cowered in its own corner when the Western Cape was made a colored preferential area, when the land was stolen Mm -hmm. from the people. Only now, the United States of America is saying, let us bring back one of the mummies that we stole from Egypt. How many other African things have been stolen by not only governments, but business people? So the reason Mm -hmm. why I'm saying Business is not our second, but our last hope. It's because there are some vestiges of good things that business has done. You remember, it was business that agitated, orchestrated for the yes vote when apartheid uh, roots were deep and not wanting to be moved and we couldn't cross the Rubicons. It was business that created the Solidarity Fund but also invested a billion rand in tourism and training in tourism and to try and really um, assuage their guilt as it were more than anything else. Lastly and lately, it was business that said we can roll out vaccine problem program by meeting weekly, having JSOCs and focusing on milestone and, and, and working out exactly what needs to be done if 67% of the herd immunity needs to be reached, it means probably about um, 100,000 uh, people in, um, um, in fact inoculated the day every day. Had we done that, it would have taken us 400 days or 13.3 months. So they have that ability. So with the same breath, we also need to say, but also business itself has been exceptionally good in corporate capture. I mean, look at Steinhoff. Look at Tongat Hewlett, a 150-year-old company. Look at KPMG. I mean, the list is endless. So when we address the issues of business, we also need to be intellectually honest and say there are those amongst us, even if it's no more than 20%, that have agitated and orchestrated and benefited uh, from state capture, from looting, for, from feeding at the trough, those need to be isolated. That is precisely why, you see, when I was the CEO of Business Leadership South Africa, for the first time in the history of this country, of this organization that was founded in 1960, even before I was born, that we suspended four business organizations. And I think we ought to have suspended more and we need to continue to suspend more. Unfortunately, now we are even readmitting the people who have not even done the bare minimum to make sure that... Well, I was going to come on to that, Bonang, because let's drill down into the detail in the time that is remaining, right? Because the question is whether South African business writ large can be trusted to demonstrate the ethical leadership and then the technocratic leadership and the intellectual leadership 
that we broadly, at least you and I agree, is sorely missing from the ANC-led state. Now, let's take those who have been implicated. We don't need to wait for the NPA or some special species of the NPA that deals specifically with organized criminality for us to accept the legitimacy of the substantial findings of the State Capture Commission. And then peer review is very important. It's the same, let's say, to take a weird, small little analogy, not so weird, I think. You know, I don't need to wait for a journalist that is unethical to be found guilty by a tribunal before I write a column and say, I hereby rebuke my friend and my peer fellow journalist Bonang Mahale for the following reasons. But we don't see that. We don't see businesses in South Africa showing that kind of voluntary ethical leadership and coming up with recommendations before they are imposed on you. I might have missed the news items, and please tell me if I did, of whether it's BUSA, whether it's business leadership, saying we think it is a good idea for Bain never to be allowed to do business with the state. We think that it was not good enough for McKinsey to pay amount X rands back to the state because the total economic ruin is far bigger than the nominal amount that was invoiced for a particular project that actually led to the incapacitation of a key part of the state. We don't see that. Even Steinel, for that matter, we don't see corporate justice, and we see this weird Lone Ranger analysis. Marcus Huister is the problem, rather than everyone else that propped him up within the company that is still sitting around today trying to reinvent itself. On key example after example after example, the business leadership bodies in this country and individual big organizations within corporate South Africa are at best silent and at worst actively trying to prop up their friends that have been found wanting ethically. You have hit the nail absolutely on the head, my dear brother. Even though nominally, I mean, Busa issued a statement that said the issue of Bain needs to be dealt with by an organization where that membership is held, which is Business Leadership South Africa, which by definition is also a member of Books. And you said, you need to come back to us and explain what is it that you have done mm. uh, to make sure that you have dealt with the rot within your own ranks. I think business is mm. guilty as hell. But you see, contrition remains an ongoing process. You have to continue asking for forgiveness and remain grateful for the mercy shown. The condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. In South Africa, we have not allowed the people whose land has been stolen, the people who have been op uh, oppressed, subjugated and excluded uh, to speak up. We have also allowed the very same people who are in business that have been looting at an industrial scale also to be our spokesperson. Imagine trying to get the techie excited about Christmas. I think what needs to be done is to really address the fundamental structure of this economy that continues to exclude the majority of these people. 
Let me also end Eusebius by saying there's one thing that we also as businesses not help this ANC government to do. Uh, even by African standards, when Africa becomes free, there's two things that they do very well. Number one is to increase substantially the education level of their own people. Number two is to increase the ownership of business itself by the previously disadvantaged individuals, the indigenous people by double digits. Today, 29 years into democracy, the ownership of the JSE in its purest form is still languishing around 3%. When you include the ownership of pension funds and provident funds where black people are the majority, you still don't even touch 10 percentage points. That's where I think the phenomenal failure has been since. The true test of whether business can step up lies in these practical issues that we are talking about, like your vaccination example, so that we can see whether there are successful examples of proof of concept that business can step up, and then asking how else it can be done and can it be scaled up. And I want to end with two practical challenges that you list at the end, but I think it was, in a sense, where a second follow-up article, if I may be so bold as to suggest one, need to begin, because the bulk of your article was an excellent analysis of the state of the economy, the data, areas like KZN losing out on, you know, sort of port activity compared to Mozambique, etc., and then an analysis of the ANC. But then you have headlines at the end of areas where business can intervene, investment and growth, infrastructure, network industries, capable state. But in a sense there, one sentence bullet points is not enough because that's exactly where the argumentation burden lies to give more meat, to put more meat to the bones there and articulate how business can make a difference. And I want to probe two examples there. But before I do that, I've got one high level question about business to ask. Isn't the point of business to maximize value for shareholders? And if it is, isn't there an intrinsic problem? You might believe in, for example, a approach to business as an individual thinker within the leadership space, Bonang, where shared value is important to you or stakeholder capitalism. But the reality is that those are slogans that are painted in the foyers of multinational corporates across the world. But in the details of their business, it's really about returns for the stakeholders in terms of literally how much value they can capture that goes back to those who have put money into the business. And so when you tell me 15 minutes ago in this conversation, the single biggest threat to the foundations of democracy is the instability of young people who are unemployed, inviting trouble, which I think is not an exaggeration. Businesses don't care about fair wages, living wages. They care about how many people can I employ as rock drill operators at my mining operation at a price that I can get away with to maximize value for the shareholders? If the answer is the market says, and suddenly the market is treated as an authority, as a real human being, 9,000 rand, my man, then sorry, you CBS, 
asking for 12,500 is not going to cut it. So what do you say to, to, to that skepticism that market fundamentalism drives business decisions and the incentive to do so is that businesses exist by definition to maximize shareholder value, not to solve for ethical questions like how do we settle the wage levels to make sure that we have fair wages as opposed to wages that reflect what the labor market allows you to get away with. You know, Eusebius, you bring the most critical part towards the end. This is what I learned in Ivy League universities as the purpose of business to maximize shareholder value. But you see, what we are proposing now in the 21st century is that instead of being obsessed just with shareholder maximization, what about being absolutely concerned with a broader stakeholder um, community? And I'm proposing a new ethos in which corporations will be accountable to all stakeholders, not only shareholders, employees and customers, but also society at large. Today, surely the new purpose of business must be to survive, to deliver shared value, to deliver on what it says and promises, but also to do no harm, to make the world a better place and provide ethical leadership and true engagement. You see, business is no longer on the periphery of development. It is intricately intertwined with society and its citizenry role. Business must do well by doing good. Broader societal issues of justice, of fairness, of equality and peace are at the core of business and its desired outcomes. I'm proposing that business... Udan, can I needle you with this intervention? I buy that, but you are speaking to the converted who doesn't own a multinational corporate. I'm not a vice president in charge of corporate affairs for SAB or some other major company. Does that argument land with your colleagues when you don't have... Are you serious on the other side? Because I'm not the one that needs to be convinced that it would be good for society if all stakeholders are taken into account when major decisions are made by, by Shah, whether or not to go and explore in the Eastern Cape, what's happening at the bottom of the ocean. Those The argument that you've just outlined for a reorientation of how business fits into society and sees itself in society, that relies on the pool of the ethical intuition at the heart of what you have outlined. But honestly, between you and me, we won't put it on the podcast, maybe. Um, how many of your friends really take that seriously because there's no value incentive for them to behave morally? Or at least they don't in see fact, it. I, in fact, you must put it in the podcast because I see an increasing number of my own colleagues from a small base, I must admit, that are beginning to think this way, that are beginning to accept that business cannot continue to be indifferent to the plight of the most vulnerable. Hmm. Business must be deeply committed to ethics, to integrity, respect, and moral values. It must be committed to doing the right things. I think it was Archbishop Emeritus and our own human rights activist, Mpilo Desmond Tutu, who opined that if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. 
If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. There's a need <laughs> to restore trust, faith, and confidence in business and government. Business must work much harder. What a strange and wonderful change that would be, my brother, if we were to achieve this new status. That's why I spend my life yeah. educating own colleagues. That's Absolutely. why I spend my life demonstrating beyond any shadow of doubt that I can be a different human being. Of all the things that I choose to be, imagine if I chose to be kind so that we can graduate from humankind to being kind humans, Eusebius. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm going to ask a last question, just, just as a, a parenthetical comment on what you say. I'm skeptical about whether that lands. I, I, I buy the argument normatively. I'm so skeptical that for years when I do keynotes, I've, I've often started off by appealing to a non-ethical argument, which is to say that it makes business sense to give a damn about inequality. Um, and I had an unfunny joke, which I don't think in the circumstances is to be taken lightly because the July riots portents of that happening again in the future. That if you don't care about inequality and what happens in townships and you live in Santon or Sanders, they're going to come after our bottles of Chardonnay in the suburbs. So there's a self-interest that business must reconcile itself with for why it should care about the issues that you have outlined so brilliantly even if they don't want to accept the moral logic, there's business logic to care about it. But let's end off by asking you about investment and infrastructure. You, at the end of your analysis piece, list areas where business could step up and complement the state and help it solve for certain issues. I'm going to give you three to four minutes to end off, um, but I want to ask it skeptically. You know, we 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 can't say business can help to improve investment prospects in the country when business has been sitting on cash, demonstrating its own skepticism about whether to invest locally. As for infrastructure, as the second part of my, my question related, um, I wonder what infrastructure projects you have in mind because business has often taken massive infrastructure projects, such as in the construction sector, as an opportunity for unethical and illegal oligopolies and monopolies to be formed rather than bona fide infrastructure projects to help society at large. So when it comes to investment and infrastructure as our final two examples, how do you imagine if we are now positive and forward-looking, business can make a difference? You know, Eusebius, you amaze me by how you really profoundly understand the challenges of this country, but also from government politics, but also in business. So for me, moving forward, I would say if there are five things that we can focus on to give effect to these six things that I've spoken mm. about, number one would be to stabilize the energy mm. supply. Because, you know, in 2022, we have lost 560 billion rands to the economy. We have wiped off an entire percentage point from our GDP. In fact, at stage six, we lose six billion a day. So you can see that it matters. Secondly, I think we need to accelerate select water projects. You see, the, the collapse is not just energy and water. We see it in fuel. 
the airports are not providing um, fuel for the mm-hmm. aircraft. Uh, Emirates now asks you not to come at your scheduled time at one o'clock at Urartambo, but nine o'clock so that they can take you to King Shark International Airport where they're going to refuel. But also food. I mean, constant challenges, cyber attacks, mm-hmm. KZN floods, local business forums. Uh, these are just normal criminals Mm. who are demanding equity from businesses. Our ports are now the third worst in the world. The third is to unlock select logistics industry bottlenecks where things are just not happening. Look at the Maputo port that I make as an example. If you go through the Kruger, the kilometers to the Maputo port is more than 10 Mm. kilometers long. But those drivers are saying Better we queue here for three days than to go to the Devon port. Now, that is serious yeah. indictment, really, for us uh, as business. The last two is how do we unblock the 2.2 trillion infrastructure investment mm. pipeline that is just sitting in business so that we have more faith, we demonstrate our bona fides through actions, not just empty ways. The last one is how do we improve law and order, my dear brother? Because look at how it manifests. I mean, we are now holding the world record for all the wrong reasons. The most unequal society in the world, the country with the highest unemployment rate in the world, the country with the highest SME failure rate in the world, the country with the highest GBV rate in the world, not by a factor of two, but five times the global average. Second in suicide rate only to Russia. We are the worst G20 country, as by the G20 research group uh, report. How do we then begin to yes. address the hemorrhaging of certain critical talent and mm. skills? I'm not even talking about being the most violent, but also the country with the highest road uh, fatalities. So for me, I think, my brother, we need to seriously reflect as business to say, what is our role in ensuring that we reduce this notion of increasing inequality, where racism is at an all-time high, where black graduates are roaming the streets hopelessly, where crucial infrastructure is laying barren, where we were not even expected to add mm. more to the infrastructure that we inherited from the apartheid government. All we had to do was just maintain it. When our lawlessness has now become an epidemic. Absolutely brilliant. I love your passion for our country. I love the clarity of your thinking, your ability to move between big picture analysis and the minutiae. And that agenda that you have set at the end is a collective one for all of us. And the undergird for why we should tackle it is that we live in silos within our cities according to our income or class stratum that we occupy but our fate collectively is tied together and i come back to my cynical point that if someone is not convinced by the ethical reasoning at the heart of this conversation they should recognize from a utilitarian point of view, we had better take seriously solving these problems for self-interested considerations, quite apart from the fact that it's the right thing to do. Bonang, thanks so much for coming on. My brother, thank you for having me. I want to apologize on behalf of business because the first to apologize is the bravest. Thank you for the opportunity.